Ooh, that's a bingo. <laughs> Is that the way you say it? That's a bingo. You just say bingo. Bingo! How fun! How fun indeed it is, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Short Story Bingo. My name is Nate Chacon III. Let's get that applause in there. If this is your first time, welcome. If it's not, the retention program is working. What we do on this podcast is I'm a glorified narrator. The stories that you have heard and some that you have not. It's like Libro.fm, sort of. Um, what we're going to read today, well, first off, thank you guys so much for... Uh, the comments from the last episode, uh, episode 57, um, where we read um, from, and I don't even fucking remember. Did, oh, HP Lovecraft. That's right. Yeah. Thanks, George. I appreciate that. Um, but uh, th- I'm definitely going to be reading from him more often. So that's, um, you know, in, in the toe. But with everything going on, I wanted to uh, have a change of pace here. So today we're going to be reading from R.B. Bernstein, The Founding Fathers Reconsidered. Take a quick peek at that. Um, I've had this book for a while, and um, it's just adjunct to what's, uh, you know, the, t- the temperature of the nation. It's important to remember um, how we got here and, and things of that nature. So we're going to read the epilogue from that and uh, have a good time with that. But let's uh, go into mentioning our sponsors, shall we? Uh, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Extraterrestrial Media. Visit extratmedia.com. If you need to film a music video, record an audio single, or get a drone shot of your business or home, need consultation for a project, and then a lot more, just visit extratmedia.com. They have a range of services to help any of your media needs. We're also partnered with Libro.fm. When you make the switch... Enter Story Bingo at checkout for your new membership to receive two audiobook credits instead of one. Libro.fm makes it possible for you to buy audiobooks through your local bookstore, giving you the power to keep money within your local economy, create local jobs, and make a difference in your community. Whether you are paying for monthly membership, giving an audiobook gift to a friend, or buying audiobooks for your organization, Libro.fm splits the profit from your purchases with your local bookstore. For us here at Show Story Bingo, we partner with the King's English Bookshop, which is on 1511 South and 1500 East in Salt Lake City, Utah. Visit kingsenglish.com. Okay. Also, make sure to like, follow, and subscribe uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Gabino Grimes, at Short Story Bingo, at George Life, and at Extra T Media. Um, let's make sure that we uh, get. The top three countries and the top three states. I was actually joking with George about this, um, that Russia's off the list at this point. So the top three countries right now beyond the United States. Um, yo, shout out to the Netherlands. Whoever, one person, two people, whoever's listening out there. Yo, you guys are number two and have been for like the last seven weeks. So shout out to the Netherlands, Canada, and Australia. And then the top three states are Florida, Idaho, and Texas. Uh, I don't know whatever i appreciate it thank you guys so much i mean um i can't i can't express that enough so much so much uh appreciation towards you guys all right let's get into the random twitter follower shout out um and today it's at battle box tv uh the talent industry's premier multi-platform discovery network so shout out to battle box tv thank you guys for fucking following me so there's that um Having said that, uh, I want to give a big shout out to any and everyone that voted. Uh, democracy is still in, uh, you know, 
as, as possible here in the United States of America. I certainly believe that wholeheartedly. I'm over here with my, you know, my America shirt. We're recording this on Veterans Day, so happy Veterans Day out there. I did my my service to the country and uh, in the Air Force, and my little sister is in the Navy, so peace to that, her and anyone else who served. Episode 58, short story bingo, the founding fathers reconsidered, R.B. Bernstein. My name is Nate Chacon III. Thank you. Enjoy the ride. And let's get into, uh, you know, the intro music. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. Sometimes they're funny and sometimes they're sad. Most of the time they're funny because I hate to be sad. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. But don't take my word for it. Spare fingers. Yes. Okay, let's get into it. Uh, before I do, I wanted to give a shout out as well to uh, the boys over at uh, Lake Talk 801, at Lake Talk 801. Um, it was just was on their podcast, and um, yeah, that should be coming out, and I'll, I'll post about it, but I wanted to give them a shout out. I got their, got their hat, rocking their merch, and um, yeah, man. Also, one more time, Extra T Media, check out the merch there. We got... We, if you're watching, I mean, you can see it, but if you're not, go to the YouTube. Um, but shirts, all sorts of music um, of the sort. So, all right, let's get into this. The Founding Fathers Reconsidered by R.B. Bernstein. I had to take a breath because I feel it like we're going to, you know, get into it. Americans' contentious relationship with the Founding Fathers has unfolded within and been shaped by a pair of linked questions. How much, do the fathering, how much do the founding fathers resemble us, and how much do they differ from us? To what extent are we obliged to keep faith with them, and to what extent must we challenge them or set them aside in the face of changing conditions and problems? That the American people still govern themselves under a written constitution framed by the founding fathers, albeit with a series of amendments adopted between the early 1790s and the early 1990s, gives these questions urgency and bite, which I totally agree with. Have, you know, with, uh, I don't know, I mean, not, yeah, I'll just not mince words about it with how um, old it is, I guess. Um, it's important to know that with the amendments process that we are adapting to the times, which is um, very, very crucial to push forward our democracy. So I absolutely agree with that. The preamble statement that the prim primary purpose of the constitution was to form a more perfect union offers a way to find answers to these perennial and perennially, uh, perennially troubling questions. In particular, the phrase a more perfect union suggests the framers recognition that the constitution was not, or the Constitution not only was improving on the Union as defined by the Articles of Confederation, but that both it and the Union were capable of further improvement. Indeed, during the ratification controversy, many supporters of the Constitution invoked the amending process codified in that document's Article 5 as a mechanism for repairing defects in the original Constitution. 
With this remedy available and more workable than the comparable system, codified in Article 13 of the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution's backers describe the choice before the American people as between the hope of future good and no hope at all. You know what? I'm going to look up Article 5. Let's see. As we're doing that, we're going to do this as well to give a shout-out to Alex Trebek. Rest in peace, Alex Trebek. But here we go. Uh, Article 5. Constitution. Okay. So, I mean, he explained it, but I'm going to say it right here. Okay. All right. Article 5 of the United States Constitution describes the process whereby the Constitution, the nation's frame of government, may be altered. Under Article 5, the process to alter the Constitution consists of proposing an amendment or amendments and subsequent ratification. Okay, cool. So good. So, yeah. I mean, as they were making it, uh, it, the Constitution, they were like, hey, we're making sure that obviously things are going to change and uh, things, you know, these, these words, uh, excuse me, you know, what we're setting out right now may not uh, hold up. The idea of perfecting the union has been a vital, but until recently unappreciated feature of American political and constitutional culture. In particular, Perfecting the Union has been a key theme of African-American constitutional thought. Several African-American activists, orators, politicians, and jurists, all of whom have played vital roles in the ongoing American constitutional experiment, have offered a series of revealing variations and developments of this theme. In the process, illuminating the complex relationship between the Founding Fathers and posterity all sought to engage with the lives and words of the Founding Fathers. And all blended clear-eyed criticism of the Founding Fathers' greatest failures with hopeful invocations of their political and constitutional principles as a means to set those failures right. To perfect the Union defined by the Constitution and preserved in the centuries that followed. Given the centrality of the African-American experience for American history in general, and the struggle over, sla uh, over slavery and the Constitution in particular, the pattern of thought traced by these thinkers has urgent relevance for the evolving American relationship with the Founding Fathers. Could not have put it better myself. And it's it, and as it explained there, because of, of so much change needed uh, happening, even in the early 1800s after the after the constitution has already been ratified and, and was placed uh, as the uh you know first documents or what have you um it was already being pressed and as as noted here you know the african american experience is something that has been very much in that forefront to make sure that change continues to happen on july 5th 1852 frederick douglas gave an Independence Day address to an audience of more than 500 abolitionists in Corinthian Hall in Rochester, New York. In an event sponsored by the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society, their choice of speaker was inspired. 
Douglas had already won international fame with his 1845 narrative of narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. Great book. Um, I highly, highly recommend it to anyone and everyone. And a series of lectures and addresses on slavery, abolition, and emancipation. 34 years old, tall and strongly built, with a powerful voice and a mesmerizing delivery, Douglas was a rising star of the National Abolitionist Movement. Standing at the podium in Corinthian Hall, Douglas did not miss words for his gen- genteel audience. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him, more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Whoa. Damn. Yo, that's in that's July 5th, 1852. You know? Like that how much weight does that hold still to this day and like Frederick Douglass was a, you know, he he was invited to the White House. Uh, I mean, again, former slave that. Uh, I, I, honestly, there's not enough superlatives that I can use for Frederick Douglass, but that that's very very powerful, very powerful. There is not a nation on this earth on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the, are the people of these United States at this very hour. This passage introduced the best-remembered feature of Douglas's widely reprinted address, his indictment of American hypocrisy. He pointed out that on the 4th of July, white Americans thanked heaven for their freedom while either enslaving African-American men, women, and children, or ignoring the ghastly spectacle of slavery. Unlike so many of his allies in the abolitionist movement, Douglas refused to fix the blame for slavery on the founding fathers. Instead, he argued that they were the victims of a gross misrepresentation, excuse me, (laughs) they were the victims of gross misrepresentation by his era's defenders of slavery. It is a slander upon their memory, at least so I believe, said Douglas, insisting that the Constitution was a glorious liberty document. Douglas refused to despair, pointing out that the Constitution's text nowhere explicitly mentioned slavery. Douglas took this omission as a a positive statement by the Constitution's framers that the American nation's future would have no room for slavery. Even in the face of many Americans' 
hypocritical tolerance of slavery while celebrating freedom and independence, he concluded that the words of the core American document of political foundation, combined with the changing attitudes of his fellow citizens, gave him hope for the future. While drawing encouragement from the Declaration of Independence, the great principles it contains, and the genius of American institutions, my spirit is also cheered by the obvious tendencies of the age, said Douglas. 111 years later, after Douglas's oration, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., another young African-American leader, addressed the national audience. An organizer of the 1955 Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott and a leader of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, King helped to plan the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. On August 18, 1963, several hundred thousand demonstrators, white and black alike, marched through the city of Washington, D.C. From the Washington Monument to the Lincoln Memorial, Gathered before the memorial, they then heard a series of speeches and musical presentations. In the event's closing speech, Dr. King invoked the origins of the American Republic. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence... They were signing a promissory note to which every American was the fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would pursue, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America is defaulted on this promissory note, insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, American has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that that bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cast this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. Let's go. All right. Like Douglas, King pointed out that the founding fathers' words challenged America's future and failures. And he urged African Americans to invoke the best aspirations of the founding fathers as authority to confront and overcome the failures of the American experiment. On July 25th, 1974, Representative Barbara Jordan followed in the rhetorical footsteps of Douglas and King. Though only a first-term Democratic member of the House, Jordan brought to, the con to Congress a distinguished record of achievement as a Texas state senator. In the tumultuous summer of 1974, as a member of the House Committee on the Judiciary, Jordan was one of those members of car Congress who first had to consider whether the alleged misdeeds of President Richard Nixon required the use of the Constitution's mechanism for presidential impeachment. 
When she delivered her opening statement on the first day of the committee's nationally televised hearings, Jordan invoked the origins of the Constitution and the fraught relationship between that document and African Americans. Earlier today, we heard the beginning of the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. We the people. It's a very eloquent beginning. But when the document was completed on the 17th of September, 1787, I was not included in that. We the people. I felt somehow for many years that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton just left me out by mistake. But through the process of amendment, interpretation, and court decision, I have finally been included in We the People. Today, I am an inquisitor. I believe hyperbole would not be fictional and would not overstate the solemnness that I feel right now. My faith in the Constitution is whole. It is complete. It is total. I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. We're going to have a lot of applauses in this one, yo. We have a lot of applauses. Yeah, let's go. That is fantastic, man. Barbara Jordan, Representative Barbara Jordan. Yet again, Jordan sounded the central theme that despite the taint of slavery and racism, the principles at the core of the Constitution of the United States, expanded and applied over the course of American history, were common property of all Americans. Yet again, she challenged all Americans to defend and vindicate those principles. Thirteen years after Jordan's eloquent statement, the nation commemorated the bicentennial of the framing of the U.S. Constitution. Dissenting, dissenting from the bland, celebratory tone. Bland, celebratory tone. Sorry, that's my bad, y'all. Okay, I was doing so well up to that point. I swear, I, I promise. If you're just tuning in, go back to like the last like 10 minutes. I was killing it, dude. Dissenting from the bland, celebratory tone of the planned commemorations. Associate Justice Thurgood Marshall of the U.S. Supreme Court, shout to Thurgood Marshall for sure, delivered an address reprinted by law reviews across the nation. In the 1940s and 1950s, as lead counsel for the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund, Marshall had waged a brilliant and hard-fought legal campaign against segregation and racial discrimination, battling to make the guarantees of the 13th 14th, and 15th Amendments, legal realities rather than empty promises. In 1967, after Marshall had served first as Solicitor General of the United States and then as a federal appellate judge in New York, President Lyndon B. Johnson appointed him as Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. Marshall thus became the first African member, uh, African American member of the High Court. In his 1987 address, Marshall challenged the bicentennial celebrations then underway, focusing on the nature of the more perfect union, 
that the Constitution created. He protested what he saw as the, quote, complacent belief that the vision of those who debated and compromised, excuse me, and compromised in Philadelphia yielded the more perfect union. It is said we now enjoy, unquote. In measured rhetoric, barely concealing his scorn, Marshall declined to share that complacent belief. I do not believe that the meaning of the Constitution was forever fixed at the Philadelphia Convention, nor do I find the wisdom, foresight, and sense of justice exhibited by the framers particularly profound. To the contrary, the government they devised was defective from the start, requiring several amendments, a civil war, and a momentous social transfer transformation to attain the system of constitutional government and its respect for the individual freedoms and human rights we hold as fundamental today. When contemporary Americans cite the Constitution, they invoked a concept that is vastly different from what the framers barely began to construct two centuries ago. I'm going to give my take on that, but kind of a, definitely like it's a, a, a bit of a contrast to what, you know, Miss Jordan said, Representative Jordan and, and Martin Luther King and, and Frederick Douglass, but along still the same path that this, the constitution has room to be better. And where it stands today is, still leaving folks out but i digress i just find it just really 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 potent right now especially with everything that's going on about keeping the security of democracy intact and with the last four years as they've been like how does how how do i i'm asking myself this question right now now i'm just talking to myself how do i feel as an american over the last four years and with the new president elect coming in, like how does how does their how how open is the door or what what what's the you know how large is the people that we're looking at to to heal America and, and how quick is that gonna happen? Um where are we at with that? I feel like we took some steps backwards in the last four years, especially with all the different rhetoric, whether it be racist, you know, racist, racism, uh, racism, yeah, racial rhetoric, misogynistic rhetoric, pure division, outlandish behavior. Unbeknownst to ourselves how the law was being stricken in front of us. <laughs> and where we are now and what we want to become, where am I at as an American? Ask yourself that. I, I'm asking myself that right now. I was telling um, my uh, good buddy of mine this on election night that, uh, honestly, whoever had won, uh, I was... 
I just was like, you know what? At this point, I just want to be good to people, man. I, I like, I, I, uh, I, I appreciate when Joe Biden says that he's not going to be a president just for Democrats, that he's also be, you know, president for Republicans. And I see a lot of, and I hear and read because I have Twitter and I have a working set of eyes. The, the division that we're seeing now is unprecedented from like four years ago. It's just more than, I mean, four years ago there was division, but the point I'm making is I, I just want to be good to people. Uh, whatever side of the aisle that you're on. And I appreciate the same thing in return. Even if we don't agree on certain things. I've had to tone down even like fandom and things of that nature because of like, I I've, I've caught myself being like, damn dog, like you're getting a little heated over like sports. And I'm being very serious when I say that and, and being like, yo man, come on, just take it easy. You know, I'd make it a point when I'm talking to someone to actually listen to what they're saying rather than formulate my thoughts immediately. I want to take in what they're saying first, you know. I'm getting choked up. I love this country a lot. When I um when I signed up to defend its honor, I wanted to make sure that my family's name was going to be cemented within this country. I think, I think we have a, I think we have a very good opportunity right now. Once everything's, once all the dust settles, you know, cause we still have that, which is all good too. You know, I'm all about processes, so it's okay. If he wants, if if President Trump wants to have every fucking vote recounted in places, then fucking do it. I just want, I, I just would like to see us come together more. Maybe that's like a little bit of the centrist in me. Because I appreciate both sides of the aisle. I, there's some things that Republicans view that I, I view as, and there's you know things that on the Democratic side that I that I, I absolutely agree with. There's things that like the Libertarian Party that I absolutely agree with, but there's also just that knowledge that again I just want people to have a moment to like speak and have their own thoughts and be able to generate that, and that's what I think the Constitution through Article Five was able to give us as far as amending the process. I don't know that we've amended it enough. In fact, I do know that we have not amended it enough. I think it's, I don't, I don't like the terms of senators, how they can just stay in for 40 years. I don't understand that. That'll be for another podcast. I don't know which other, you know what? This is for this one. I don't understand that. We should have new voices in pretty often. Folks that are tapped in with the people, tapped in with what's going on today, new technologies, rather than having 
lobbyists continue to pour money into people because that's their job. They become career politicians. Being a politician is a civil service. You know, it's not something that like a job that you, I don't, I don't find it to be like a career job like that. Slightly why I have a little bit of a problem with Joe Biden because he's 70 what? And you know, his whole, he, he's, I mean, be after being vice president, he hasn't been, you know, doing politics. The point that I'm making is that there, there's something to be said about change and there's something to be said about being able to amend the constitution. I think the framework of it was uh, good in nature, but I think that we've definitely been able to look at it at its face and um, give some different perspective on it. All right. Here, Marshall, so let me, I'm going to reread the, the speech to give it its, its due process again. I do not believe, um, I do not believe that the meaning of the constitution was forever fixed at the Philadelphia convention, nor do I find that wisdom, foresight, and sense of justice exhibited by the framers particularly profound. To the contrary, the government they devised was defective from the start requiring several amendments, a civil war, and momentous social transformation to attain the system of constitutional government and its respect for the individual freedoms and human rights we hold as fundamental today. When contemporary Americans cite the Constitution, they invoked a concept that is vastly different from what the framers barely began to construct two centuries ago. Here, Marshall diverged from the path marked out by Douglas while echoing, echoing the arguments made by King and Jordan. He too insisted on the evolving nature of the Constitution. After sketching the many battles by which success, successive generations of Americans forced the nation to live up to the principled promises of its founding documents, Marshall concluded we will see that the true miracle was not the birth of the Constitution, but its life. A life nurtured through two turbulent centuries of our own making, and a life embodying much good fortune that was not. He continues, Thus in this bicentennial, bicentennial, bicentennial year, we may not all participate in the festivities with flag-waving fervor. Some may more quietly commemorate the suffering, struggle, and sacrifice that has triumphed over much of what was wrong with the original document, and observe the anniversary with hopes not realized and promises not fulfilled. I plan to celebrate the bicentennial of the Constitution as a living document, including the Bill of Rights and other amendments protecting individual freedoms and human rights. Wearied by his decades of service on the court and his growing frustration with his colleagues' failure to understand the history he had endured and had helped to shape, Marshall was more dismissive of the Founding Fathers than Douglas King or Jordan had been. But he was equally committed to the power of the words they had shaped and the need to give those words real meaning in the world. 
On March 16th, 2008, more than two decades after Justice Marshall's controversial lecture, Senator Barack Obama of Illinois, then a candidate for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination, gave a speech at the Constitution Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on the enduring significance of race in American history. Though the event marked a critical juncture in Obama's quest to become the Democratic nominee, he saw its larger significance as well, casting his oration as a principled reflection on the continuing place of issues of race and faith in American public life. Like his predecessors, Obama began with the words of the Constitution's preamble. The hope of those who had framed it, their failings in the process of framing it, and the ongoing struggle to repair those failings and bring American constitutional realities more in line with American constitutional aspirations. Barack Obama. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union. 221 years ago, in a hall that still stands across the street, a group of men gathered and with these simple words, launched America's improbable experiment in democracy. Farmers and scholars, statesmen and patriots, who had traveled across an ocean to escape tyranny and persecution, finally made real their Declaration of Independence at a Philadelphia convention that lasted through the spring of 1787. The document they produced was eventually signed, but ultimately unfinished. It was stained by this nation's original sin of slavery, a question that divided the colonies and brought the convention to a stalemate until the founders chose to allow the slave trade to continue for at least 20 more years and to leave any final resolution to future generations. Of course, the answer to the slavery question was already embedded within our Constitution, a Constitution that had in its very core the ideal of equal citizenship under the law. A constitution that promises people liberty and justice and a union that could be and should be perfected over time. And yet words on a parchment would not be enough to deliver slaves from bondage or provide men and women of every color and creed their full rights and obligations as citizens of the United States. What would, what would be needed were Americans in successive generations who were willing to do their part through protests and struggles on the streets and in the courts through a civil war and civil disobedience and always at great risk to narrow that gap between the promise of our ideals and the reality of their time. Several months later, on the evening of November 4th, 2008, Obama, now the Democratic presidential nominee, achieved a decisive victory in the 2008 general election. <laughs> um, in his victory speech, the presumptive president, the first African-American elected to the nation's highest office, acknowledged the history that he and his followers had made and related it back to the Founding Fathers. If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, 
who still wonders if the dream of our founders is alive in our time, who still questions the power of our democracy, tonight is your answer. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. That's the true genius of America. That America can change. Our union can be perfected. And what we have already achieved gives us hope for what we can and must achieve tomorrow. Drop the bomb on them, dog. In the days and weeks following Obama's speech, a host of commentators argued over whether his election indeed fulfilled the dreams of the founding fathers or whether any of them could even have conceived such a thing possible. The verdict of these discussions came remarkably close to the line of argument sketched in this epilogue. That Obama was invoking not just the best aspirations of the founding fathers, but the efforts of generations who came after them to narrow the gap between the ideals and the reality of the American experiment to perfect the Union. The theme remains constant, and indeed, it echoes the words of a great work of religion and law that was centuries old when the founding fathers began their labors, the Talmud. As the ancient Jewish sage Rabbi Tarfan counseled in Ethics of the Fathers, quote, It is not thy duty to complete the work, but neither art thou free to desist from it. Powerful. That was the epilogue, uh, The Founding Fathers Reconsidered by R.B. Bernstein. One more time for you. Might have some, yeah, a little bit of grease on my hands there. But um, what's more to be said than what I already said? Uh, let's, I just, uh, I, I, I just implore everyone to um, just be good to each other, man. Um, I, I have a strong faith in our country and our resolve. And I think that uh, good things are going to come from um, each of us getting on board with such. Um, I wish everyone well, and uh, especially amidst what uh, is shaping out to be a second wave of the pandemic. I hope that uh, you and your, your loved ones are, are well. Um, I want to end this on a high note, so I'm, I'm ramping up to that. Um, but it's really, really... Uh, I like I love that story, or it's not a story. I just love that I needed that. Honestly, that was probably more for me. Um, and if you needed that, you're welcome. And thank you, R.B. Bernstein, for that episode fifty-eight short story bingo. My name is Nate Chacon the third. Um, big shout out one more time to the top three countries that were listening. Can't figure it out, but the Netherlands, Netherlands is number two, Canada, and then Australia. Uh, and then the top three states, Florida, Idaho, Idaho, Texas. Um, really, really appreciate you guys, man. Like, follow, subscribe, hit me up short story, bingo at gmail.com. Send any sort of story, article, poem, whatever you want to have read. I'll do it. Um, 
but I love this country. I think that we have a lot of work to do, but I think that um, I'm optimistic about it. So uh, big ups to my boy, George. Uh, go follow him at George Life at Extra T Media. Go follow at Libro FM as well. Again, enter, enter the code story bingo at checkout. Get two free audio books instead of one. I appreciate the partnerships. And um, yeah, we're going to keep this moving, man. Um, Love y'all. Short story bingo. Episode 58. Nature Con the third. And I'm out. Dun dun dun. Spare fingers. Yes.